Welcome to the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast. I'm in Devil's End, just outside the Clovenhoof pub. And inside, I'm hoping to meet some people involved with the restoration of the demons for Blu-ray. Oh, that's better. It's nice and warm in here. And where are they? Where are they? Oh, I'll just ask. <clears throat> Excuse me. Does anybody know where the Doctor Who people are? First time you've played, is it? Never mind. Oh, they're over there. Hiya! Must be a Blake 7 pup. Hello and welcome to this special bonus edition of the Missing Episodes podcast. And we are here to celebrate the recent release of the Doctor Who The Collection Season 8 Blu-ray. And I'd been reflecting on the amount of work that goes into these and the sheer number of people involved. And it strikes me that making these things involves a veritable small army of people. The producers, Russell Minton, Pete McTie behind the sofa and all the team behind that and the guests of course Chris Chapman's documentaries and the team there the production notes on the subtitles the graphic design work the commentaries the PDF material Peter Crocker Paul Venezes Mark Ayres and all the folks who produced the original DVD material of course and there are undoubtedly all sorts of unnamed people behind the scenes four of which we have here today so in no particular order we've got gav rymill one half of the dalek 6388 team graphic designer artist podcast star hello gav hello we've got anthony lamb and ant is the guy who builds authentic full-size models of daleks and sets and then pretends they're what the kids call cgi renders he's done covers for big finish and work in Doctor Who magazine and, and did that last brilliant cover with the various eras of Daleks on it. Hello, Ant. Hello. We also have Richard Tipple, and Rich is perhaps best known as the project lead on the colorization of the Daleks Master Plan Episode 2, Day of Armageddon, and he's a, a well-known colorist of all monochrome Doctor Who. Hello, Rich. Hey, Tim. And last but not least, we have Kieran Hyman, who also worked on the Day of Armageddon colorization project and has flown 23 hours and spent 14 days self-isolating to take part in this today. Hello, Kieran. Hello, Tim. So, season eight, and it falls under the purview of the Missing Episodes podcast because most of the original 625 line PAL original tapes don't exist in season eight, save for one and four of the Claws of Axos and episode four of The Demons. 
indeed, I think my first experience of the demons was the black and white film copy on the Pertwee years of episode five in the early 90s. And I find it amazing to think and easy to forget that at the start of the hunt for missing episodes, only about half of the Pertwee era survived in their original format. And with the release of this Blu-ray, I don't know what you guys think, but there has been just this amazing reception for season eight in that we've had other big seasons. We've had season 14 and, you know, people were talking about that and season 12 and what have you. But I don't know why, but this particular season has been followed by this tide of fondness. Is that true? There has been a huge amount of positivity for both the content and the restoration. And I've seen even positive comments about Colony in Space, which is extraordinary. So there is some kind of fever <laughs> sweeping the nation. I just feel that when I'm watching it, it just hits this sort of sweet spot of classic, brilliant Doctor Who. Could it be that of all the seasons that have been released so far, this is the one that's got an actual really definite chart of progression in terms of quality and what technology has been able to do? Like where they started with episodes where, where, you know, black and white, fairly ropey, and then they're improved a bit from the VHS to the DVD, and it's come such a long way. Now we're here at the Blu-ray. I think people enjoy just seeing the era that we're in now. Like, we can do so much to improve these things that people just accepted as being a bit ropey in the past. Now they're getting to look genuinely good, and I think that that's just really exciting for people, I think. Yeah, and I, I think also it's a blend of the restoration product, the actual presentation, and the contents, because if you go later in time, there's no restoration needed. And if you go further back in time, there's sadly fewer surviving people who are involved. So it's also a sweet spot in that you've got this great opportunity to ask the people who are in it and still around and can appreciate what's being done to their episodes and how those episodes are being resurrected and uh, spruced up. So yeah, it's a nice balance of opportunities for restoration and things like the CGI for Terry the Autons, Chris Petz and his partner did an amazing job. I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to see how, how much temptation there would be for much insertion of CGI into 60s stuff. I know they obviously did the Dalek Evasion of Earth flying saucer for the DVD, but it just feels like the colour era is a slightly more appropriate time to tinker with. Yeah, and the particularly in this season, the over-exploitation of chroma key which wasn't always 100% successful. And technology does allow for that to be perhaps tidied up to be what Barry Letts would have wanted it to look like on the screen. It's the George Lucas effect. Yes. When some technologies are embryonic, people tend to overuse them, overreach themselves, be overambitious. In other words, beginning with over. And the overall quality can suffer. Yes, I think, Ant, you hit the nail on the head there, in that as we've all grown up watching these things we have gone from sometimes ropey 16 millimeters unrestored black and white copies to the various stages of restoration and color recovery over the years and so let's move on to the demons and how you guys are involved historically sat in the BBC archive, apart from episode four, which was on its original PAL colour format, we had black and white 16mm copies. And The Demons was the first 
to attempt to be recolored, combining the black and white film for the luminescence, for the detail. And they used the color signal of a 525 line pneumatic off-air recording, that was, which was recorded off a PBS broadcast in California. Thank you, Ian Levine. And you'll be able to see it on the Blu-ray extras, and I remember it going out at the time, but Howard Stapleford covered it in Tomorrow's World in 1992, and he talked about how they had to stretch the colour signal off the off the tapes to match the luminescence from the, the black and white copies or vice versa. That Colour Restored Demons was aired in 1992 and released on VHS. With a little paintbrush on the um, mm. on the spine, if you remember that. Very exciting. So the 30th, so it would have been 1993, I think. 93, yeah. And the DVD was released 20 years later in 2012, and that, that introduced Vidfire to give it that smooth video motion, and no doubt the, the picture was further tweaked and the colour further tweaked. And then nigh on 10 years later, we're on to the Blu-ray. And Peter Crocker did some work on it. Initially, he was just doing uh, an upscale of the DVD master and an additional cleanup of dirt and scratches. And he retouched some of the vidfire artifacts. And because of the amount of work needed for that whole season, he was focusing on Terror the Autons, Colony in Space and Mind of Evil. And so there wasn't a great deal of attention going to be given to the demons but uh, Russell Minton was looking at the fringing and wondering if something could be done but as Peter was pretty slammed he approached me to see whether I had any thoughts on doing some color fixes and I in my in my occasional bits of free time which can last up to six months depending on the life of the freelancer. I play around with new bits of software and there was one that came along called EB Synth. The purpose of which is to allow you to modify a single keyframe from a video sequence and then EB Synth will apply the changes in that one keyframe across a, a, a whole sequence of frames. So for example, if you've got a 10 second clip of an actor in a red shirt, which is 3000 frames. If you take one keyframe and change the color of the shirt and give it to EB Synth with some variable degrees of success, EB Synth will generate as many frames as it can based on the single keyframe that you give it. So the idea is that theoretically you could take sections of black and white Doctor Who, colorize a single keyframe, and then use EB Synth to generate more frames so that you're essentially not just manually retouching every single frame. You're doing occasional keyframes and, and trying to join the gaps, if that makes sense. So I'd, I'd actually just been doing some silly experiments uh, with this software. I'd been um, changing the color of Colin Baker's coat, the rather bold choice in the original program to other variants. Uh, I did a burgundy version, a blue version, a black version. And I think it was that, those little uh, experiments that made Russell wonder whether that same software could be applied. Then this issue with the demons came up that there was some bits of nasty fringing that Peter didn't really have time to look at. So uh, Russell Minson asked me if we could try and use this process to clean up bits of the demons. And I said, probably. But actually, we, we did some tests. And the first thing I did was just frame by frame manual retouching in Photoshop because the test footage that we looked at 
that I looked at was not really suitable for EBSynth. So I did some attempts in Photoshop and it was it was okay, it was patchy, but it was incredibly time consuming. And then I did a more successful sequence with EBSynth and generated a lot of keyframes for, for not very much work. And so I sort of was able to say, yes, if it's tricky, it'll take a long time to do 30 frames. And if it's a nice static shot, EB synth will come into play and it will take a relatively short amount of time to do like 10 seconds, relatively. So what were the specific types of issue that you were asked to sort out? So, so the most noticeable thing watching the demons is that the colors from one object bleed sideways, usually to the right into the next object so there's some really bad shots of like people's clothing against walls or, or grass or whatever and their, their colors bleed into the background and also on the other side the background bleeds into the clothes and um, apparently this is due to NTSC reception issues so it's, it's not something that can be sort of globally corrected you can't bend the picture uh, in order to refit those colors so that was the main thing uh, to get rid of the the halo effect around people's skin tones, and also where their the colours of their skin tones were lost across one side of their face. So the colour bleeds are an artifact of the original broadcasting California or wherever. That interference in the colour would have been caused by interference in the in the TV reception. Based on what I'm told, yeah, that it's an NTSC reception thing. Interesting. So Russell gave me a list of the worst offenders of these these shots where it this effect really stood out and asked me to come up with a, the, a ballpark idea of how long it would take to fix these issues. Episodes one and two, there were a handful. Episodes three is the, the worst offender. And so I was left with this daunting question of, of how long would it take? And I just didn't know because every shot presented its own issues. If it was a fast moving shot and there was a, a, a lot of lateral motion in the frame it's really hard to apply EB synth to that yeah it, it was just it was just very it was very tough breakdown to try to work out the exact challenge that each shot was going to pose and because some of it's automated you set up the process and you click go and you you come back after six hours to see how badly wrong it's going <laughs> so it was really it was really difficult to to kind of work out but I did my best to say this is a hard shot, this is an easy shot, and, and I kind of pulled together a, a rough number of hours that I thought it would take. And then just as uh, I was being asked to uh, make a proper start on it, I was also asked to make a proper start on the Dalek manual. Available at all good At all good retailers. ethical and unethical online retailers. So my time was extraordinarily limited and I didn't want to say no to this work because I had such fond memories of Howard Stapleford and Tomorrow's World in 1992. <laughs> the idea of being involved in the, the restoration of a, of a story that I was so excited to see in its first phase of restoration when I was 12 years old, I, I would have been frustrated to turn it down. But realistically I did not have the capacity to do it so at that point I started thinking who I could rely upon to uh, bring on board and help with the workload and that's when I approached Anthony and uh, then Rich and Kieran we assembled a team and I sat back and watched them work miracles 
I remember getting a series of uh, text messages from Gav, <laughs> which, uh, right, are you about? Have you got a sec? And I was like, yeah, sure. And um, and then um, Gav sort of gave me uh, the, the background on what he was up to, but he wasn't able to sort of mention exactly what it was and all of that sort of stuff. And he asked <laughs> if I had any uh, experience using this software and how it would how it would work and stuff and i remember both of us sort of looking at each other thinking oh this is a job <laughs> this is going to take a <laughs> this is going to take a bit of work so then you've you've got together the a team you've so you've got your team together let's go let's find out what each of you did then and and how you perhaps selected what you were going to do anthony yes i uh i only did three shots uh, i think they're from episode three and i think it might have been kieran came up with a he did a really good little chart of like a tiny frame of the shot in question that had been requested and a brief note about how long it was and stuff uh and so i just chose a single little chunk from that and it was three shots from episode three and just got going on that and um i was using eb synth and until now i would have pronounced it Ebsynth. same here <laughs> i would have only just heard gavin pronounce it i've always <laughs> called it Ebsynth, and then i i just recently watched a flurry of youtube videos and i seem to be the only person in the world who pronounces it Ebsynth, so... Okay, well, I'm going to try and bend my brain to say EB Synth. So, yeah, Gav, in the early stages of talking about this, Gav told me what he was doing, and of course I'd seen his Colin Baker coat experiments and stuff, uh, and I think he'd also done a clip from episode one of The Demons. Miss Hawthorne is talking to the Doctor, but not the Doctor, just the Doctor. <laughs> so, Gav had done a... Gav had done a test on that shot, and that was that was the first one. I I had a quick go on that shot as well, and I I did a few EB synth keyframes and just learnt the software, noted how it propagated the color information to the surrounding frames and stuff. And I thought, okay, I I I understand the mechanic, I can do this. So that was my first little test, uh, and so when it came to applying that process to the shots I randomly chose, they turned out to be a vastly different kettle of fish in that they were fast moving sort of handheld camera. It was quite intense, a lot of motion blur. And when things are moving that quickly, that close to the camera, one frame to the next to an AI, it can't connect those two dots. It's like, wow, this fist over here has absolutely no relation to this fist over there. So it doesn't know what to do and you get a mess of colors. Uh, and that's the sort of thing where you have to like, like I think, in the worst instances of those shots, the keyframes boiled down to like they were every frame because there was not enough continuum of movement, I suppose, persistence of vision from an AI's point of view. There wasn't enough of that to actually work out what was happening from one frame to the next automatically. It was a satisfying scene to do though because there was like a, a vast swathe of grass and in some shots, the clothes of Yates and the guy who's attacking him were just bleeding all over that. It looked like a grey, foggy mess. Uh, and the housing in the background and the fists and the sky and the wall, just everything was actually really satisfying to clean up. It's nice to watch those shots now, thinking, okay. And how about you, Kieran? Well, me and Rich basically took what was left of the shots to do. And uh, what, what was our method, actually, Richard? Did we did we sort out from the beginning who would do what, or did we pick them as as they came along? Well, I think we sort of dovetailed. So um, I I picked a scene, you picked a scene, and then whoever finished it first jumped onto the next one. 
Um, so yeah, it was it was a bit of a free for all, really. Um, which bits did you guys handle? I know, I know. For instance, I spotted when I was watching it how particularly the 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 bit that particularly stood out to me. I don't know which episode it was from, but the brigadier is in his mobile base outside the heat barrier, uh, and I I I just thought, gosh, that looks sharp, almost HD. But I know it's not HD. But do you know what I mean? It just looked so like you were watching the the original PAL footage. Is that something you guys did? Yeah, those were my shots uh, towards the end of episode three. It was quite quite rewarding doing those shots because you could actually compare them with the beginning of episode four, which is what I did to... Sure. You could really tell what they were supposed to look like from that perspective, which you couldn't do for any of the other shots in the other episodes quite so much. Sure, because we still have the PAL original yeah, yeah, exactly. recording of episode four. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of that was taking keyframes and basically using swatches taken from frames from the beginning of episode four and plastering the precise exact color that they should be on top because we knew exactly what they should have been. I much preferred the original where there were just bands of purple stripes across the sky. Well, I just, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> there you, get, you you come along and just make the sky blue like an earth sky. I don't know. It's, it's a very it looks... daring choice. Some people prefer purple. That's the sky's right. subjective. Anyway. Yeah, it's, it's just a construct of human perception to begin with. So <laughs> that's the other thing. Just to uh, be serious for a moment, guys, because I, I talked about the color bleeds and things being the problem, but there's some nasty banding and there's some horribly askew colors as well. So, so yeah, so the natural sky color coming in in that uh, conversation where they're talking about the the way to break through the heat barrier. Those shots outside. They look so much more natural. So uh, what other scenes did uh, did you two guys look at, Rich and Kieran? Uh, I looked at um, a, cu- a couple of shots across episodes uh, two and three. One of the ones I was particularly happy with was the stuff that began in the, the pub in episode three with the uh, Doctor and Joe talking and eventually getting Osgood and the Brigadier on the phone. That was a very rewarding one to do because there was quite a few issues with that particularly in the wide shots where there was a lot of banding and a lot of color bleeding it was a joy to patch that up really and i think that was one of the big differences um and kieran touched on it one of the big differences working on this as opposed to kind of colorizing something that was originally in black and white is we have reference material in the other kind of high quality episode Mm. uh that we can we can look at and we can know exactly you know what shade of green what shade of red exactly how the office is supposed to look etc um so we can literally go in and and color pick and make sure we're using the exactly you know exactly the right colors um, and restore the image to how it originally looked when it was created rather than when you're colorizing something that was shot in black and white and you know you're relying on behind the scenes photos or kind of reused props from color serials and stuff and and in some cases artistic sort of license it was nice to have all of the sort of color work there uh, and able to reference and given all of you really a question for all of you and given that there was a specific problem i.e color bleeding that was the reason that the work was commissioned in the first place gav's touched on purple banding on the on the skyline did any of you take an opportunity to do a bit extra on the side for free because it was annoying you or you thought i can just touch that up yeah i mean i certainly i mainly worked on film insert shots which i don't think i did on purpose just worked out that way which seemed to me to look almost even worse than some of the the videotape shots because they're already 
one generation down. For sure. That, yeah. Because there's also a lot of shots of the sky where the banding is so obvious. That took a lot of extra work. And I was almost just recolorizing the keyframes almost from scratch based on, of course, the original colors uh, to fix those problems. Even on shots where you know, you, you'd notice, you'd, you'd start working on the shot because of one particular problem. You'd notice you know, a particularly bad haze around someone's face. And then you think, whilst I'm mm. here, I'll fix up the haze around every other little thing that I can without spending too much time. It's a bit difficult knowing how long to put into something because I think we were all aware that this was going on a Blu-ray release and was going to be seen, you know, in, in high resolution. And this might be the last opportunity, you know, we've got to go in and fix these things before it's sort of the definitive version of how this episode and story looks. So there was, I think, pressure put on ourselves to make sure that it could look as good as it possibly could. I remember there was um, a, sh- um, a short clip of a jet flying, and it probably stock footage almost certainly. But you know, and I, I looked at it to fix the blue lines that were going through the green fields below it, uh, and suddenly I noticed the entire kind of left of, of frame didn't really have any colour to it. Um, so it was it was a re- very simple fix, but it was those sort of things. See, the more you look at something, the more kind of the issues jump out at you and the more you want to fix and the more you want to get right. And with that jet aircraft as well, there was the logo on the side that required a little research for you to work out what the correct logo colour should have been because that was so smeary and indistinct. It was hard to see what it should have looked like. And wasn't there one point where you replaced it with the unit logo just to see if that would fly? Yeah, we did that as a laugh. Yeah, there's a there's a logo on the, on the back of the uh, of the jet. Uh, and we just thought, wouldn't it be fun? Um, I think it was Gav's idea uh, to stick yeah. a, a circular <laughs> unit logo on there, uh, which actually worked pretty well. But yeah, I, I liked the idea. Of it. That. It, it would have been great. We might have been lynched. Oh, we yeah, would have been lynched. We're getting into yeah, special yeah. edition territory for one single shot. Regarding things like choosing what to do in a shot, it feels to me like, you know, if you if you... If you've got a dirty spot on a door that you want to clean, you clean that little dribble of tea that you spilled down there. You clean that one little bit up, and then you've got a nice little clean patch, and you notice that the rest of it is really sort of brown and grey. I think choosing what to what to correct on a shot feels to me a bit like that, where when you've done that one bit, it then sort of makes the rest of it look a bit irritating and in need of attention, and, and you end up having to do the whole door. That's quite true, because we were basically trying to fix the most obvious errors that, that had cropped up that we'd noticed. And so once they're gone, you know, the next level of errors will become the most noticeable. So you could go in and fix them as well. And so like that, it will never be perfect, you know, because we don't have the original. It's never going to look exactly like it did. So there's always room for improvement, I suppose. Yeah, a good example of, of sort of knowing when to stop was on the um, a, sh- a shot with a brig and Osgood, and I just couldn't move on from this shot there was so much that was wrong with it and as Kieran says every time you clean something up suddenly the next layer of issues sort of reveal themselves I spent ages absolutely ages colorizing a bin in the background it was quite clear that this bin was supposed to be gray but it was next to a sort of brown desk and the color as 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 you moved up the bin went from gray into brown and then there was no real separation in color between the 
the desk behind it in the bin, um, which just it just drove me drove me nuts. So yeah, I went into that sort of level of fixing all the sort of elements and stuff because once you'd fixed the top layer, your eye was suddenly drawn to all the other stuff that wasn't quite right. One of the things that wasn't on the list, which the guys wanted to look at just because it was such an iconic scene, was the five rounds rapid, which wasn't one of the worst defenders. But yeah, it was a really nice choice to spruce it up. So I think, uh, was that one of yours, Kieran? Yeah, that was another shot where, because it's such a hero shot of the Brigadier there that everyone's so familiar with. I wanted to make that look as good as possible. At which point I went through that whole shot. I think it's a one minute sequence between some studio stuff and just looked at the whole thing. And in fact, the entire scene there had been graded differently uh, already from what it was on the DVD, I noticed. It, it's a sort of cooler look than a very warm picture that you see on the DVD. I'm not sure how much um, you know, restoration changes they did to the colour, actually, before we got it. Do you know? I think they did do some. Um, I've seen comparisons for other episodes, Terror of the Autons and things like that, and there's a big grading difference to, to try to make it more natural. So I think Peter Crocker did a lot of that kind of stuff in the tidy up before we got hold of it. And actually, the last shot of that scene is a close-up of Mike's face in which there's quite a pink hue around the right side of his face. I'm not sure what, what the technical cause of that is, but that's another piece that I was keen to fix up, make more natural look. Sure. And so, in total, how much footage did Team Rymill look at? It was nine minutes, I think, in total. Yeah, it's wow. spread across okay. the four episodes. Can I talk about Benson's trousers? Anytime. Please do. There's a there's a rather uh, lovely sequence in episode two of Benson Yates uh, jumping out of a helicopter and calling over Joe. And in, in true kind of 70s style, um, I think Benson's wearing these bright red trousers. And the bright red trousers against the bright green grass that he's jumping at the uh, the color is just completely uh, bleeding out to the right a relatively simple thing to fix actually um you just go kind of create masks around each of the trouser legs what have you and, and take the grass from elsewhere and color it all in but something that was very rewarding to see at the end where you know suddenly had this nice shot of them jumping out calling joe and it didn't it didn't distract you whereas before you had this horrible bleed all the way across the right of the trousers which i, th- I think just kind of brings you out of the episode a bit when you first see it yeah some of the less terrible bits of bleeding you just kind of start to become accustomed to as the episode goes on and uh, it's only when you do a side by side comparison of of some of the more subtle, nice bits of cleanup, like you're talking before about the the scene in the in the pub, and then when you look back at the original and you just see the the color trails left by people's movements and the coat and and things like that, and and you you, you forget that it's not supposed to be like that, but we kind of become acclimatized to the poor quality as the episode goes on, and then something like Benton's trousers comes along, which is like next level true, terribleness. Yeah. And you're reminded of the problems. And I think that then kind of recalibrates you into noticing that problem again. When the problem's suddenly really bad, you you see slightly less terrible things as more of a problem. So I think picking out the worst offenders and toning that down helps the overall balance of the episode. I think you're not drawn to the technical flaws of the rest of it quite so much. 
There was actually one shot in episode three where I was able to work in some color detail from a photo that I'd, I'd taken on film, in fact, at Auburn at the original location of uh, yeah, the church courtyard. And because I knew that you know, grass is green and stone is brown, I was able to take the color signal from a portion of my image and place it on top of the shot that I was restoring. I think in order to increase the, basically just increase the color detail, isn't it? Yeah. Color resolution. That's amazing. That's really good. And I used an actual film photograph that I'd taken because the the grain, the actual genuine color grain comes out nicely. I think doing that on using film photos as a method works better than using digital photos. Did you plan, like when you took that original photo on location, did you do it with any, like, did you take it from the position intentionally that it was appropriate for that restoration? Did you think, oh, this is like that shot, I can do that? Or did you, did you just look through and think, oh, look, this happened, happily coincides with the angle that would be useful for this restoration? No, just coincidentally. I mean, I didn't know that I'd be working on a restoration in the future, but I did take the shot deliberately from the same angle because that's something that I was doing during that holiday for Twitter was um, sort of now and then comparisons. So that's where that photo came from. That's brilliant. I guess we are now in the era where these things are going to look as good as the amount of time that has been put into them because of the technological wizardry that you guys can all do. I, I commented on Twitter that the mind of evil, I thought when I was watching it that the colour looked more stable. And so, you know, I asked Peter Crocker um, and he said, yes, he had tinkered with it. And I think on the Radio Free Scarrow interview with Mark Ayres the other night, he said that, I think it was for the mind of evil, apologies if I've got this wrong, but they'd redone the order in which they do their various processes. So this time round, they vid-fired the 16mm black and white and then added the colour, um, which enabled a more stable colour to be present in those episodes. Because when it was out on DVD, it was a bit ropey, if I'm honest. It was lovely to have it with colour in there. So, yeah, and, and Peter said, well, he could have done more had he had more time. So I guess in 20 years when this is released on... Brain hologram. Yeah, direct-to-brain, <laughs> um, super high definition, that, you know, there'll have been 20 years of tinkering and the technology will allow more. It also raises the question, which you've all touched on, of how good do you make it look? At what point are you improving on the original and not trying to get it back to the original as well? I think AI upscaling will continue to improve as well. Mm. And uh, I've seen some really impressive experimental footage that uh, somebody was doing on Deep Space Nine. Because Deep Space Nine was, yeah, it was not shot in HD. and It, it, it was all shot on film, but they haven't scanned the original film for it. Right, yeah. It's only available. And they rendered their CGI in standard definition, so mm. that all needs re-rendering or upscaling. Mm. So what, what this um, this AI upscaler does is analyzes a sequence of frames and then takes all the relevant detail it can out of any given frame. It's basically like frame stacking, which is used in astronomy and, and other things to get more detail out of a uh, static shot. If you take a dozen static shots and stack them on top of each other, then the, the theory is that each frame will have a, a tiny piece of extra detail. And when you combine them all, they're greater than the sum of their parts. Reese Williams has actually 
done some quite impressive frame stacking from 60s Doctor Who. He got some really decent clarity out of the wheel in space cybermat x-ray and you see loads more detail on his stacked frames than you can in the original shot because one of the things that really impressed me with this deep space nine upscale was it was revealing like the lettering on the sides of the ships which is just impossible to see in any given freeze frame of the original footage but when they stack the shots you can then read like uh, USS Defiant on the front of the ship. And From different prints of the same master? Is that how it works? No, no, it, it's different frames of the same sequence. So like if a ship flies past the camera, ah, you, you've got frames yeah. 10 to 20 as it goes past the camera and the AI takes the the moving ship from across every frame combines them and overlays them and takes the detail out and then basically spreads that detail back into the into the moving sequence so fantastic it, it's it's really promising technology and it's getting true actual detail rather than because one of the things that there's constant objection to upscaling is that it's inventing detail uh, with stuff mm. like um remini for example is using ai to work out what might be there but it's not really there um, so when it's filling in people's eyes and faces and, and hair, it's guessing what might be there. Whereas this type of AI upscaling used in Deep Space Nine is actually taking all the detail that's there from all the different frames of different sources and combining it into single images. So it's not it's not fictional version of um, high resolution. Will we get some HD Hartnell? Potentially. That'd be nice. I firmly think that Given a number of years, like maybe 10 or 20 years, I think we'll be able to watch missing episodes in probably colour HD because of any amount of combination of technologies. Mm. Things are moving so well, and I'm just so excited by the fact that we're going to be able to do things that we would have previously thought impossible. Backwards from, you know, recreating missing episodes, the Pertwee era still has plenty of problems so when you look at a ambassadors of death which which doesn't look quite so good and of course there's invasion of the dinosaurs episode one invasion are these all things that that are in the current realms of technology to fix manually or things like eb synth are, th are these all things that given the right amount of time and love put into it are, there, are all these issues that we see in these episodes fixable now yes <laughs> given Given time, I'm sure they are. I think, as always, the problem seems to be how much of one's own time are people willing to invest in something that isn't actually being paid for or isn't budgeted for. Um, sure. Probably yeah. do all sorts that probably actually isn't going to get done right now because people are doing, you know, they have lives and there's a lot to get done <laughs> in, in one's life. Well, that's actually the benefit of there having been two releases of this in the past is that you know previously as you say they've only got so much time to do so much restoration uh, and because so much has been done before it now we can come along and do this mm. little bit extra just to put the cherry on top you know that might not have otherwise mm. been done it's nice as well because as you say you're building on other people's work so all these people have worked really hard on it for you know decades and there's a whole kind of team of people that have worked in it and every layer it gets better and better and better and then we can come along and take all the credit for colouring in some trousers <laughs> right there. <laughs> Absolutely. EB Salutely. Yeah.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that little glimpse behind the curtain at a soupçon of the work that went into just one story of just one of these Blu-ray box sets. And for those in Australia, Canada, the US and elsewhere who have yet to see them, I hope that's whetted your appetites even further. And thanks indeed to our excellent guests, Ant, Gav, Kieran and Rich. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a like and a share, and please do leave us a review. I don't think we've hit our maximum potential audience yet, and we'll do more of these bonus episodes as and when the opportunity arises, if this one does well. And finally, we'll be back next time with our look at how the missing episodes of the Daleks' master plan came back, and what we think the chances of getting any more are. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. natural sky color coming in in that uh, conversation where they're talking about the the way to break through the heat barrier those shots outside look so much natural so they look so much more natural <laughs> they look like my speech patterns are so natu- natural much n- muchliness just like a nat- nat- Jim, nat- keep nat- the first nat- one in naturally streak streaking english pro- some people just, have a way with words norm- and other people like, no have way yeah the worms <laughs> So many worms. I've never <laughs> noticed how much you look like Russell T. Davis until today. Oh, yeah. Have you just changed? Who? You. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not saying he's an unattractive human being, but I don't look like Russell T. Davis. Well, should we take a vote on it? You can all stop recording. Oh, oh stop. Heard.